I want to begin uh, today by uh, telling you of something I came across in my study um, uh, in the journal of Leo Tolstoy. Uh, Leo Tolstoy was a author, Russian author, who lived in kind of the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, he wrote books like War and Peace, so uh, books that most of us know about but have never actually read. Uh, the thing about him was he was a great author. Uh, many people looked up to him, uh, thought he was great. He's listed as, as one of the great writers of uh, the last few hundred years. Uh, the thing is, he knew it. He knew he was great. And he did not shy away from talking about his greatness. Uh, so let me read you what he wrote in his uh, journal when he was 25 years old. Uh, this is what he said uh, after reading uh, a certain book. He said, read a work on the literary characterization of genius today. And this awoke in me the conviction that I am a remarkable man, both as regards capacity and eagerness to work. I have not yet met a single man who was morally as good as I. I do not remember an instant in my life where I was not attracted to what is good and was not ready to sacrifice anything to it. And so you see in this man uh, a lot of pride. He thought he was good, more morally good than anybody else around him. Uh, and the reason I tell this is not because uh, all of us are writing in our journals about how great and awesome we are, uh, but I think that this kind of pride, in a little bit, uh, is present in all of our lives. We, we don't, of course, yeah, write in our journals, so I'm, I'm the best, I'm the greatest. But we all kind of look around, and we do tend to think that there are others who are not as good as we are. And especially in our relationship with God. We look around, and we, we tend to see the good things in our life, and we, we tend to kind of bring those to God and think that somehow those good things kind of impress God, would show him how great we are, and that he should accept us because we're, we're not bad. And, and this parable that we're about to study today in the passage, Luke chapter 18, if you want to open your Bibles, uh, Jesus uh, directly confronts this. And so Luke uh, chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, uh, I want to read through it. Um, we'll read through it together. Uh, the text won't be on the screen at the start, so if you have your Bible, open it up. We'll read through it, and then we'll uh, just work through the passage. There won't be any points today, so all you note-takers, I'm really sorry. We're just going to work through the passage, and then I want to give you three applications at the end. So... Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Uh, let's read together. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That is God's word to us uh, this morning. 
like I said, uh, no points. We're going to work through the passage and then three applications at the end. So let's begin by just looking at verse 9. It really tells us who uh, Jesus intends this parable for. Verse 9, uh, Jesus says he told, or Luke tells us that he, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So he's telling this uh, parable because there are people around him, perhaps Pharisees, perhaps even his own disciples, who think that they are trusting in themselves that they are righteous. There is something about them which makes them righteous and good in God's eyes. And so we need to understand this parable is not meant primarily for those who uh, kind of know themselves to be sinners, those who are outside of God's people. This is actually primarily directed at those who see themselves as religious, those who would see themselves as of having followed God. Look at the two people that Jesus introduces us to, the two characters, the tax collector and the Pharisee in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And uh, it's kind of like, you know, if you're telling a joke and you say uh, two men went into a bar, one was a pastor and one was a drug dealer, you know right at the, the moment, you're like, okay, there's going to be a contrast. There's something different about these. And it's kind of the setup. It's kind of like that. Two people went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, one a tax collector. Uh, the differences between these two could not be more extreme. The Pharisees were the religious people. They were knowledgeable in the scriptures. They were the ones that people looked up to as the model of what it looked like to live a godly life. And they, they taught it to others. But the tax collectors, these were people who had kind of sold out. They had gone with Rome. Uh, they, they were collecting people's taxes, would extort people for extra money. Uh, these people were greedy and dishonest. Uh, they were not liked. They were despised. And the idea that a tax collector would go to pray, it almost sounds like an oxymoron a tax collector praying, really. That's the setup that we should understand. There is the ultra-righteous, ultra-religious, and the ultra-sinner. So look at what Jesus says about the Pharisee first. Uh, we see it in verse uh, 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So the Pharisee, he, he is the epitome in this parable of the one who would trust in themselves that they are righteous. And there's two things I want to point out to you about this Pharisee, that we see how and why he is trusting in his own righteousness. The first thing you, you see is that the reason he's trusting in his own righteousness is because he's comparing himself to other people. Look again at the verse, verse 11. Standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He compares himself to the people around him, and therefore he thinks of himself as righteous. And I think we all know this is pretty easy to, to do in, in our life, right? We say, yeah, 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 I know I don't like dress super well, but at least I dress better than Bob over there, right? You know, at least I'm, you know, I'm awkward, but at least I'm not as bad as that person over there, as her, you know, I'm, I know I'm angry, but I'm not as angry as my parents were. Or I, I'm not as bad as my friend. We compare ourselves to others. And we start to think pretty well of ourselves because we, we look around at others that we see as not as good. There's always someone in our life who's not as good as us. 
It's interesting that um, as I've talked with people over the years, uh, there's this conversation that's happened a couple times. And I'll be talking to someone, usually about some area of sin in their life or something going on, and we're just discussing it. And uh, they may be having trouble seeing how serious this is in their life. And they'll say something kind of to this effect. They'll say, yeah, okay, I know. I know this thing is bad. I know it's wrong. I know this sin is not good. But like, at least I'm not Hitler. (laughs) To which I'm like, Yes, that is great. Um, Unfortunately, if you compare, everybody is righteous if you compare them to Hitler. Hitler is not the standard of righteousness. And so we compare ourselves to others. What, What happens is, you know, we tend to think highly of ourselves because we can look and we can always find someone who struggles with some area of sin more than we do. And that's exactly what the Pharisee is doing. Uh, He is comparing himself to others and therefore begins to think highly of himself. But there's a second thing he does, and it's in the the second sentence, uh, verse 12. We see that he trusts in his own righteousness uh, because of his external form of religion. His external form of religion. Uh, Verse 12, the second half of his prayer says this. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And so he's there praying to God, kind of pointing out to God, hey God, look at the things I've done. You know, I tithe, I fast. And in one sense, uh, that is pretty impressive. Uh, the, The Jewish people at that time were required only to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, So he's fasting twice a week. That's 103 more times a year than you need to fast. It's a lot. That's impressive. He's tithing everything, very diligent about it. Again, Uh, worth mentioning, but when you really think about it, it's actually not that impressive at all. The righteousness, the thing he wants to point to and say, God, this is the reason why I am worthy, why I am important, it's not very impressive. it's, It's kind of things that are actually very easy to do. Like, really, fasting, giving away a certain percentage of your money, Anybody can do that. Like, it doesn't take a super spiritual person to be able to fast or to give away money. Anybody can do it. It's really easy things. He doesn't come and he doesn't point and say, God, uh, look at me. I've really uh, loved people sacrificially. Or I've really cared compassionately for the poor. He just points to external things. External forms of religion. Look at how Jesus addresses the, the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11. This is just uh, before this. Luke chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect the justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The point is, yeah, it's great, you do that. Uh, But there's some bigger things that you're actually missing. You think you're righteous because you have this external form. But the substance, the essence of a heart that's been changed, of a true spiritual person that's going to flow out into your life, you're missing all those things. And I think some of us are still like the Pharisees today. We, We tend to think of ourselves as pretty good, pretty righteous, because of the external form of our religion. We look around and we see people in the church or even outside the church. And you know what? We say, you know what? I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I mean, I'm here at church. 
every week. I give quite a lot of money to the church. I'm even serving at the church. Can I tell you, those things, easy peasy. Anybody can do those things. It doesn't take a super spiritual person to, to do those things. Those are easy. Those are just the form. How, how, how's it going with loving your enemies? Forgiving as the Lord has forgiven you. Counting others more significant than yourselves. Oh, how's that? Oh, okay. Well, now when we start to think not just about the form of religion, but the substance, we realize we actually fall very short. All of us. See, that's the thing the Pharisee wasn't seeing. I don't think the Pharisee thought he was perfect. But I do think that he thought that the things he was doing were enough. He thought that the things he was doing for God was enough for him to be righteous in God's sight. Except the scriptures are very clear that there's nothing we can actually do to really be righteous before God. Back in the Old Testament, uh, it's very clear, Ecclesiastes 7 uh, verse 20, the author writes, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament writes even more strongly about this in Romans chapter 3. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. The problem isn't that we do good things or that we serve in the church or that we do these things. The problem isn't those things. The problem is that we begin to trust in those things. We begin to think that those things are actually the reason that God should love us, accept us, be pleased with us. And yet if we looked at our own heart, we would begin to see how much we are missing, how short we fall of that standard that God actually sets. So that's the Pharisee. He thought of himself as righteous, but look at the tax collector. Very different. Very different prayer to God. This is what the tax collector says in verse 13. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector knew himself to be a sinner. He had, there was no pretending. There was no masks. There was no facade. He knew he had no righteousness of his own. And he comes and he asks for the one thing he knows he needs. Mercy. He, he knows he's not worthy. He won't even lift his eyes up to heaven. He stands back at a distance, not even worthy to come near to God. He says, I, I know who I am. I can't come close to you. Be merciful to me, God. And the way that he approaches God here, it reminded me of King David. Uh, king David uh, was a, a great king of Israel, but also had great sins. And there's a time where he sinned with Bathsheba, killed Uriah, and he's confronted with this sin and the reality of it. And this is what he writes in Psalm 51. Very, very similar language. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so what you see here though in King David and in this tax collector is when they approach God, when they ask him for mercy, they are not giving him some kind of reasons why they should, he should give them mercy. The tax collector doesn't come and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I promise I'll change. Lord, have mercy on me, a, a prayerful sinner, an improving sinner, a repentant sinner. He just comes and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's nothing in him, no basis on which God should grant him mercy. He knows that. He's coming really with empty hands. It's an unconditional surrender. He's not coming to God and saying, okay, God, here are the, the terms of peace. I will surrender. I will ask for mercy, but there's some things in my life uh, I'm not quite willing to give up. Or, or I will come and, and offer mercy, but here's the things I can give to you. He just comes and says, I have nothing to bring to the bargaining table. There's no goodness I have. There's nothing I have to offer you. I place myself completely and totally and utterly in your hands. And I ask you, show me mercy. See, no one today really wants to be called a sinner. I don't think anybody back then really wanted to be called a sinner. But to know ourselves as sinners is both necessary and true. It is necessary because unless we understand that we are nothing before God, we will never ask for mercy. If you notice in the Pharisee's prayer, uh, he doesn't actually ask for anything. He just comes and thanks God. He says, God, thank you for this, this, this. Thank you that I'm not like other people. And here's some really good things about me. He doesn't ask for anything. Because I think in his mind, uh, there's not really anything he needs. What do I need? I've done everything for you. But the tax collector is completely the opposite. He knows his need. And we cannot receive mercy unless we see our need. But I know that that is hard to do. It is hard to actually come to God and say, there's nothing I have to offer. Absolutely nothing. Because it's really humbling. Because we have to really see ourselves as God sees us which is that even our most righteous things, even the best things we do, are very much tainted with our own motives for self-glory, our own selfish desires. That we are nothing desperate people in need of pardon is a humbling thing to admit. We want to contribute. We want to add something. We want to feel like, you know what, it's not totally God's mercy. We, you know, we're like at a restaurant with somebody and somebody offers to pay for the bill and we say, no, 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 let me get it. Let me get it. Okay, fine. Uh, you can pay for your half. I'll pay for mine. Okay, wait, wait, fine. I'll just, I'll pay for the next one. And we kind of do that with God. We say, okay, God, I, I, give me mercy, but I'll make sure I'm better in the future. Or, or God, okay, I'll, I'll offer, I'll get mercy, but I'll change. I'll be different. Haven't you seen how I've improved in the past? Now, now you could offer me mercy. 
We want to contribute something. And yet the reality is uh, we are millions of dollars in debt and there is nothing we can contribute. God has to pay the bill. So unless we realize that, that we actually are in need of God paying the bill, and we are willing to accept that and accept his grace and accept his mercy, then we will be very much like the Pharisee. So it's at this point in the story that there's an unexpected uh, turn of events. Verse 14, it does not end the way the original hearers would have thought. Uh, This is what verse 14 says. I tell you, this man, speaking of the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so it says here that the tax collector is justified, a legal term which means to be declared righteous, the opposite of condemned. Condemned, you're declared guilty. To be justified, you're declared to be innocent or righteous. And so it's not saying that the tax collector was more righteous. It's not saying because of what he did or anything like that that the the tax collector was more righteous than the Pharisee. In fact, it was probably that the Pharisee was morally superior. The point is that one is declared to be righteous. In God's eyes, he looks down and he says, yeah, one of these people is righteous and one of them isn't. And it's not who you would expect. You would think the one who's so great, who everybody looks up to, this is the one who's righteous. And yet God says, actually, it's the one who knows himself to be a sinner. The point of the parable is that those who are righteous in God's eyes are not the ones who think they are. It's the ones who know they're not. The ones who are righteous in God's eyes are not the ones who think they're righteous. It's the ones who know they aren't righteous. Why is that? Because the ones who know they are not righteous are the ones who ask for mercy. The ones who trust in themselves, who trust in themselves for their own righteousness, they don't receive mercy because they don't ask for it. They don't think they need it. And yet this mercy is available. The ones who would ask for mercy, there is a mercy that does come through Jesus Christ. See, Jesus came to save sinners. Sinners who, like this tax collector, deserved the righteous justice of God. And yet Jesus, on the cross, he absorbs all of the wrath that was deserved for sinners so that sinners might be forgiven of that but then also credited, given the status of righteous based on his life. So they do not possess some righteousness in and of themselves, some attribute, but they are given a legal declaration to be righteous. That is what we call the doctrine of justification by faith. That that is something that is totally a gift of God. We do not earn it or deserve it, but we receive it by believing, by trusting that to be true. And so in many ways... Uh, you could divide humanity into two groups. There are those who trust in themselves for their own righteousness, or there are those who trust in Jesus to give them righteousness, to give them a status of being righteous. Uh, The Apostle Paul, he was one of the Pharisees before who fit in that first category. Uh, He he talks about how he was, uh, as to the law, blameless, He had a great family heritage. He pursued God with all of his passion and zeal and desire. He did all of that. 
And so he came to God based on his, himself, his own righteousness that he had worked up. And then he talks about how really he is willing to get rid of all of that, to have the righteousness from Jesus. Uh, look at what he says in Philippians chapter 3. He says, whatever gain I had, talking about, you know, everything I had as the, the Pharisee, all my own righteousness, all the gold stars, all the badges I'd earned, all the things I'd done, done for God, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss, as, as nothing for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not some righteousness that I've got by earning, working, anything like that. No, no, but by that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, I, I don't want, I, I don't want to even think about all that stuff I've done. That, that's not how I approach God. I approach him on the basis of the righteousness I've received, not the righteousness I've earned. Uh, the thing about it is, we can't actually have both of these at once. You cannot approach God on the basis of your righteousness and on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. You have to choose. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers from the 1800s, he had a great illustration to explain this. Uh, this is what he said. He said, um, talking about how we need to throw away our own righteousness. He says, it reminds me of a ship on a storm, in a storm. Uh, when the captain leaves the harbor, he has cargo on board, of which he takes great care. But when a tremendous wind is blowing, and the ship labors, being too heavily laden, and there is great fear that she will not outride the storm, see how eagerly the sailors lighten the ship. They bring up from the hold with all diligence the very things which before they prized. And they seem rejoiced to heave them into the sea. Never were men more eager to get than these are to get rid of. There go the cases of flour, the bars of iron, the manufactured goods. Overboard go the valuable bales of merchandise. Nothing seems to be worth keeping. How is this? Are not these things good? Yes, but not good to a sinking ship. Anything must go to save life. Anything to outride the storm. And so the Apostle Paul says that in order to gain Christ and be found in him, he flung the whole cargo of his beloved righteousness over and was as glad to get rid of it as if it was only rubbish. The point is, we have to choose. Or will we approach God like the Pharisee on the basis of our own righteousness or on the basis of the mercy we've received from God? If we realize that in Christ, through faith, we can have that perfect righteousness, this other stuff, toss it overboard. We will throw it out so fast. Because a briefcase that is full of counterfeit cash, it's actually no value when you bring it to the bank. And neither is a life lived with supposed righteousness before God. So that's the parable. 
Three applications. First application, humble ourselves. We are to humble ourselves. Look at verse 14. Jesus, as he closes the parable, says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The point is we need to humble ourselves. It is an active thing of which we must do to humble ourselves before God. Uh, we need to see constantly our need, our need for mercy. Uh, not just, it's not just a one-time thing that we do. We say, okay, I know I need God's mercy. You know, that's when I'm converted. I see that God's grace, great. You know, it is a continual thing, ongoing, that we must do to continually be humble. See, the river of our heart it flows very strong in the direction of self-righteousness. Everything in of us, us naturally leans towards this way of saying, this is why I'm justified. This is why God should pay attention to me. This is why he should be pleased with me. And we must fight back to say, actually, I deserve nothing from God. Continually, every day, I need his mercy. We must constantly remind ourselves that we are nothing. So how do we do that? Well, here's one way. One way we can do that is by bringing ourselves face to face with the hideousness of our sin. I think for many of us, uh, we know ourselves to be sinners. But if um, we imagine that we see our sin in the mirror of God's law, God's law is really what shows us that we are sinners. Uh, if there is that mirror that's hung up on our wall, uh, we like to look at the mirror from like across the room. Right? We kind of see the general shape. We don't really see how sin has distorted us and disfigured us. We just see, yeah, yeah. I can see from far back here, I, I'm a sinner. Generally. Or maybe I, I kind of struggle in this area. But if we are to humble ourselves, we, we need to come face to face with our sin. We need to walk right up to the mirror and look it in the face. We need to see all the warts and dimples and ugly pores that sin has caused. When we look at God's law, we don't just see the, the laws of the Ten Commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery, but we see what those entail. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, not, not just that you don't murder, but you don't be angry. It's not just that you don't commit adultery, but you do not have lustful thoughts. When you start to get close and you realize, oh, wow, God's law includes all of my thoughts and my actions and my, my heart. Oh, wow, we are undone. For we actually are nothing. It's easy from afar to say, oh, yeah, 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 there's some rules and I've kept most of them. When you come face to face and you see them, you cannot help but be humbled. Because all of us fall so greatly short. Even in our pride, especially in our pride, we need to understand if we are to be humbled, God's attitude towards the proud. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter writes, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. And why should we do that? For God opposes the proud 
but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. We are to humble ourselves because God is opposed to those who are proud. It is not just that he is neutral towards those of us who are prideful. He is opposed to it. We should humble ourselves. That should be a scary thing to bring us to our knees and see our need. To see that we need mercy. We cannot continue in our own ways, in our own righteousness. But the wonderful thing is if you've ever been there, when you get to the point of ultimate humility, when you get to the point where you come to the Lord, like this tax collector, and you, you have nothing, and you say, Lord, I actually have nothing to offer you. There's no reason you should love me. There's no reason you should care for me. There's nothing I've done that's actually honoring to you. When you get to that place, where all of your, the clothes of your self-righteousness have been torn off and you stand there naked with empty hands, it's actually the greatest joy. It's the greatest joy because there's no more pretending. There's no more masks. There's no more reason you need to try and be something for God. You say, I'm nothing. So Lord, clothe me in your righteousness. Give me the righteousness of Christ. I have nothing. I only live to live for you. So we are to be led to see our need and, but that need should lead us to ask God for something, to ask him for mercy, to ask him for the mercy that would forgive our sins, that would give us the righteousness we need. We are to humble ourselves so that we can come with nothing, so that we may receive everything. That's the first application, that we are to humble ourselves. The second application is let mercy level the playing field. Let mercy level the playing field. Uh, what I mean by this is that one of the main problems we saw in verse 9 is that there's those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and therefore they treated others with contempt. They thought themselves to be pretty good, pretty righteous in God's eyes, and so there were others who were not as good and they looked down on them. They thought they were less valuable, less worthy. But the truth is, if we realize that all of us come before God, not on our own merits, not of our own achievements, but because of the righteousness of Jesus, then that destroys any sense of boasting, any sense of pride among us. We're not going to look down on others, for they all come to God on the same basis. There is differences in abilities. There is differences in spiritual maturity. We know this. There's gifts that God has given to some that he hasn't given to others, but it's not because of who we are. Those things God has given us, every gift, talent, ability, every grace, any virtue, all of that actually comes from God anyways. So how can we look down on others? This is exactly what Paul talks about to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The, the Corinthian church was puffed up with all the gifts that they had. They thought they were so great. This is what Paul says. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Okay, yeah, there's things in your life that, that, you know what, you're better in some areas. You're a more mature Christian in this area. You know what, you have gifts and talents that this person doesn't have. Great. But it's not because of you. It's because God gave it to you. It's a gift. So we can't boast. We can't think of ourselves as better in any way. We come as equals to God. 
There is no one that is a better Christian because of some Christian things you've done. Because you've given more to the church. Because you've served more at the church. Because you've led a Bible study or a community group. In the church, there is no second class Christians. There is one class of Christians. Forgiven Christians. We, we, we all come with equal worth and value. Yes, there are differences, but it does not affect our value, our worth. And so when we look at other people in the church, we're not to look down on them. We're not to think that others are less than. In fact, instead of looking down, we are to look to build up. We see others around us. Okay, how can I disciple them? How can I pray for them? How can I come alongside people to help lift them up towards godliness? So let mercy level the playing field. The last application. And this is really an encouragement for those of us who know ourselves to be sinners. And that is this. The greatness of your sin does not disqualify you. The greatness of your sin does not disqualify you. There are some of us who do not uh, feel very much like the Pharisee. We don't really think of ourselves as that righteous in and of ourselves. We actually feel more like the tax collector. We know we're sinful. We, we know we have nothing to offer God. We know that it's been time and time again that we've continued to sin. There's big, large areas of our sin in our life. And we wonder... Is there mercy for me still? The hope and the encouragement from this passage is, here is the tax collector, a sinner who pleads nothing else other than his sin, and he is given mercy. See, in every other area of life, there's things we need to do to qualify, to be something, to, to, to get the thing we want. We have to qualify. The thing is, with God, the only thing that qualifies us is our sin. We, we come on that basis and that basis alone. That's what the tax collector pleads. He, he pleads, I'm a sinner. I need mercy. So we can know that there is mercy for those of us who know we need it. We come as we are, a sinner and nothing else. And when we do, my prayer is that we would find the sweetness of the mercy of Jesus. Let me pray. Oh Lord, we come as sinners. We pray you'd show us mercy. In Jesus' name.